When I was in seminary, I had a really good um, friend. A really good friend was my roommate. He was from South America. His name was Norberto. And uh, he was from Paraguay. And Norberto and I actually go pretty far back because our dads were actually in, uh, in Bible school together in Germany. They studied at the same time. And then when we were in Indiana at Anderson University, we, uh, we became roommates for about a year or so. And we lived in this kind of dumpy house um, off of, you know, college, uh, off the college campus and enjoyed the, those years together. And during that time, Norberto fell in love with a girl named Julie. She was the, uh, the, the president of the university, the student body president, and a really sharp girl, bright girl, an American girl. Uh, who had a heart for missions, who had a heart for the world. And so they uh, grew in their relationship. Eventually, they, they wanted to get married. They asked me to perform the wedding ceremony for them. I remember being out. Uh, we did it outdoors in Indiana in the middle of summer. It was oppressively hot in the heat, and I was sweating. I remember sweating through my suit and through the tie. But we got to be part of this great celebration of these uh, two people coming together. And during their wedding ceremony, they, uh, they did something that no other couple that I've married before has done yet. They, they washed each other's feet as a symbol of what God had said and Jesus had done to his disciples to show this love and this willingness to serve one another, a beautiful act of love and devotion. Not long after they, they got married and uh, finished their studies, they made a decision to go back to Paraguay to be missionaries there. But they didn't just go back like most people do. They decided to buy, they bought this old Suburban, they called it the Blue Cruiser, rigged it all up with the roof rack and everything, and they drove from Indiana to Paraguay. All right, that's an adventurous spirit, isn't it, right? They drove all the way through North, you know, North America, Mexico, Central America, through the tip of South America, all the way to, uh, to Paraguay. And there they served in, in all kinds of different ministries and, and whatnot. And, and uh, God blessed them then with a son, little Timothy, who they were raising to be a future missionary. And they were just raising him to love God and to learn all these different kinds of things. Great family experience that they were having. An opportunity presented themselves that they could adopt a daughter. And, uh, and so there was this girl, her name was Anai, and they had this opportunity to adopt her, and they embraced her, they welcomed her in, and they were just um, finishing welcoming her into the family, wanting to get the final papers, because they were going to take a trip to the United States to travel around to different churches, to talk about their mission and ministry and what they're doing. And so they wanted to drive to the capital city to get Anai's final paperwork to, to get ready for that. So on the morning of leaving for, um, for the capital city, about a three, four-hour drive, they got up a little extra early because they wanted to make, you know, get, get a jump on the day. And so as they're driving out of town, it was still dark, and all of a sudden, without knowing, without seeing anything, a truck was parked on the lane where they were driving. At the last second, with just a glimpse of the headlights, Norberto saw it, and he swerved to try to get out of the way. But the car collided, and half the car smashed right into the back of that truck, killing Julie instantly. His son barely survived the accident, but on the way to the hospital in Norberto's arms, his son died as well. Norberto and their adopted daughter, Anai, survived barely, with barely a scratch. They walked away from the accident, and Norberto buried his wife and son. Later, we find out that Julie was actually pregnant, expecting their child. And we sit back, dear friends of ours, and just the grief and the struggle that goes through that. I sat with Norberto. He still came to the States, and I remember spending time with him. And just the depth of that grief, the depth of that loss, a wife, a son, a pregnant uh, a child on the way. And you ask those questions, God, why? How can you let this happen? Such pain, such suffering. I mean, the agony that comes from that. And then you think on top of that, you go, and, and why did it happen to such good people? Someone like Julie, who gave up her life to serve in missions, did it everything for you. God, take a criminal. 
Take a rapist, take a murderer, take somebody else. Why, Julie? And we ask those questions. And these are some of the toughest questions we wrestle with. And today's question, questions of a skeptic, is an easy one to sit back, to fold our hands and go, this is why, this is exactly why I struggle in believing in God. And this question that we have, how can an all-powerful, all-loving God allow such pain and suffering in our world? Ever ask that question? Ever wonder about that? So much divorce and death, physical abuse, natural disasters, cancer, mental illness, starvation, wars, terrorism. I know you're asking that question because you asked this question. When we've been asking you for some of your, your questions that you're dealing with, here's what some of you have said. Since the recent sudden death of my 21-year-old grandson, I've become a bitter, angry, and empty person and a true skeptic, unable to even come to church service. I would really like to have questions answered so I can again enjoy life in church. Why does God let bad things happen? Where is God when people are being raped and held captive or sold into sex slavery? Why does God let horrible things happen to amazingly good people? These people are taken from us too early in life, and they have so much more good to give to the world and others, while very bad and evil people are left on this earth to cause destruction, spread evil, and hurt others. Why? Why do good people get cancer? Why are some people healed and some left sick? And the questions go on. It's not an easy topic today. It's a question I would rather kind of shove to the side and just, you know, maybe give a pat answer and say, you know, just trust God. Just trust God. But this question is one of the hardest questions that we face and a question that so many of us ask. And if you're in the midst of this hurt, if you're in the midst right now of pain and suffering, you're not just asking this as an intellectual question, but you're really struggling through something right now, a lot of my message to you will not help you. Because good answers and good intellectual arguments, philosophical points and theological points will not take the pain away, will not ease the hurt. And so just, I just say that out front. There's not a way that we're going to answer this question satisfactorily within 20 minutes or 30 minutes here to say, I got it now, now I can fully believe in God. But it's still important for us to think through and really understand what is at the heart of this question. But if you're hurting and if you're in pain, allow these, this time to just maybe come around you and understand something new about how God wants to embrace you during this time. Because in, in, when we're in difficult situations, what really doesn't help are comments like, right, oh, God is working in this, right? He'll bring it all for good. And even if these are good sentiments, if they're meant really from the heart, they're not helpful in that moment. You know, God must have needed them more than he, we needed them here when they died. Really? Well, thanks for that. That really helps. That's why I don't like God. I want him here. He doesn't need them. Another angel in heaven. Well, great, I need an angel here. Right? Those things don't help. And so we have to think through. And so in the midst of our pain, we, we, we deal with things differently. But, but for the sake of this, this series and this topic, questions of a skeptic, we do have these questions. And even in the midst of our pain, we ask why and how could God let something like this happen? And so I want to try to unpack this question a little bit and begin to try to take some steps into that and gain some more understanding and help open our eyes to, to what God's word has to say to that. So let's bow our heads and let's just ask God to, to really speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, I don't want this just to be a prayer to start a sermon, but God, truly would we, would we open our hearts to hear your word and your truth that we submit ourselves to you this morning. 
You are a God who is spirit, a God who is truth, and God, we pray that you would speak into us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's start with this question. This question of how could an all-loving, all-powerful God allow pain and suffering? If we just break down this question, there's two parts to it. All right, here's the all-powerful, all-loving God, and here is pain and suffering. And what we're having trouble with with this question when we ask it in its various forms is these two things don't seem to coincide. They don't seem like these two things can coexist. And see, what we struggle with is we can't see God. We don't necessarily know God. We try to imagine God. We try to learn God. God is this, this, this person, this being out here that we're trying to, to understand. And so that's where the questions come. Pain and suffering over here? I think all of us could say that is fact, right? Would anyone argue that that is fact? <laughs> we've experienced it. We've seen it in our world. We've seen it in history. We see the atrocities around us. I remember sitting in Beirut and, and visiting refugees from Iraq and Syria who told of horrific tortures, the way their bodies and their families and things were just abused, and you go, this is real. Our mission team right now serving in Mexico, seeing the poverty, the pain firsthand, it's real, the pain and the suffering. Those of us that have experienced loss and sickness and uncurable diseases, we understand pain and suffering is fact. Even Jesus himself says, you know, take, he says in John, what is it, 1633, right? In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, there's going to be suffering and pain. Jesus even acknowledges. So the question then comes, okay, we accept that. If that's true, then this can't possibly be true, an all-loving and all-powerful God. Because in our human understanding, those two things don't coincide, because if we were all loving, if we were all powerful, we would take care of these things. And so if God is not taking care of these things, then either he doesn't exist because such a being wouldn't allow that, or he doesn't care, or he's incapable, or, and then that's not the kind of God that I want to follow. And so we come to this conclusion, then, well, either that's not true, or it, and, and it, it hurts our brain. And those of us that love God, that have come to follow Christ, still wrestle with these, with these challenges. But even Jesus in that passage, when he says, in this world you'll have trouble and you'll have pain and struggle, he says, but take hold, I have overcome the world. And somehow Jesus seems to take these two pieces and go, they both exist. I have overcome the world, I have power over all things, and yet there's pain and suffering. And so Jesus seems to be comfortable in that tension. How can we find a way through that? How can we find a way through that tension? And so this is what I want to do. I want to look at a couple of these parts. Let's look at God, the all-loving God, the all-powerful God, and then we'll also look at pain and suffering and what God can maybe teach us through that. So let's start with a loving God. Scripture makes it clear to us that not only is God a loving God, Scripture actually says God is what? God is love. God himself is love. Love is God. It is, it is contained in God that there is no love outside of God. It is the very nature. It is the very essence of his being and who he is. And when we think that means, when we think of love, so when we think about our human terms of love, we think of, of just warm embraces and hugs. We think of affection. We think of people being together. We imagine people married 50 years and go, that is love. We think about rainbows and sprinkles. Right? We think about all the beautiful things and cuddly stuffy bears and red hearts and just being there for each other. And that's how we understand love. And we can't fathom that there would be pain and that there could be suffering and hurt inside this arena of love. And that's how we understand that. And so God, if he is all love, how can he tolerate the pain and the suffering that goes on? 
story goes something like this. There's a bear, a grizzly bear. He's in the woods. He's in the forest. He's wandering about, and he steps into a trap. You know, bear trap, right? Got him around the foot. He's not getting out. He's in pain. The more that he struggles, the more that he wrestles, the tighter it gets. The more there's bleeding, the harder it is. And he's growling. He's crying out, and he doesn't understand what's happening. But he knows he's trapped, and he's stuck, and he's in pain. And just about that time as he's wrestling through, he sees in the distance some men with guns approaching. They pull the trigger. He hears a loud shot. It hits him. He feels the burn. He feels the sting. It doesn't instantly kill him, but slowly he's fading away, just enough to see them still coming running up at him. And as though it wasn't enough already in his pain, they begin to even push further on his leg and create even more pain. And then he dies. Or so he thinks. A few hours later, he wakes up, he's at a different part of the woods, his leg is free from the trap, his leg is stitched up, and he can't believe the pain and the wounds that were inflicted in those evil, evil men. That same night, that same afternoon, one of those men that came running up to the, the bear was, went home, and he told his wife what happened that day. He said, we got a call at Animal Rescue <laughs> that there was a bear that was caught in a trap. So we went as quickly as we could, and we came. And when I saw him, I took that shot with the tranquilizer gun. And it stunned him. And because he was a big bear, it took a long time until he, he was really, you know, being tranquilized all the way. And when we got closer, we knew the only way to get his foot out of the trap was we had to push further and further on that foot to, to spring the trap loose. And eventually it did. We medicated it, we stitched him up, and we released him in another part of the, the forest. Two different perspectives. Two completely different understandings. We understand that our thinking and our way of looking at the world is way different than the animal kingdom does. Sometimes my dog just comes up to me and he goes, you know, he just, you see in his eyes, he's going, I can't figure out what you're telling me. I want to so bad. I just don't get it. He doesn't get that I jerk back sometimes on that leash as we're going because I don't want him running into the street. The thinking is in a different plane, in a different level. Scripture tells us that God's ways are higher than our ways. And God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. How can we possibly understand what God might be up to? And so the only perspective we have is our human perspective. There is no other perspective that, that we can understand and, and initially relate with. And so it is that we try to understand God. We try to grapple with this. But I think all of us understand that if we really look at our own lives, our own kids, our own marriage, relationships that we have, even within love, there can be pain. And just having love does not mean that things are pain-free God doesn't desire us to see us in pain. Don't get me wrong. When Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus, who was dead, his friend, he wept. Jesus felt the depth of emotion. He felt the depth of loss. But that does not mean that God is not all loving because he allows some things to happen or he doesn't instantly intervene because we don't know what God is up to, what God is planning, and what God is purposing. But then you might say, but why doesn't God just take the pain and the evil away altogether? Like, just, just get rid of it. Not even have some of it and not just allow for it. Get rid of it altogether, not allow it in the first place. He is, after all, all-powerful, is he not? So he could intervene. He could step in. Well, imagine you are God. Did you guys ever see the movie Bruce Almighty with Jim Carrey? He gets this opportunity, right, to be God. And he gets to, to, to do all these miraculous things, and he kind of likes it at first, but after a while, as he hears the prayers and the needs of others, it almost becomes overwhelming. But imagine you had the opportunity to be God, and you're all-powerful. 
So if you're all-powerful, you would rationalize as we would say, then I'm going to get rid of every evil because that's what we think. God, I'm not going to let that act of terrorism happen because I'm just going to stop it. I'm, I'm all-powerful God. And that's where it really makes sense. We go, that's where I would use my power. I'd stop the wars. I'd stop the terrorism. I'd stop that person from dying. I'd stop that person from getting disease. But here's the thing. Every time you use your power to stop something, to stop some evil, what you're doing is you're taking some freedom away. Right? You're taking some freedom away. You're taking the freedom away from those individuals or for those things to happen. So you have to make a choice. Where, where am I going to take freedom away? Where am I going to stop something? And so you continue on. So it makes sense in these big you know, terrors and horrors and rape and murder and all those good things. But, but then where do you stop? Where do you stop using your all-powerfulness to intervene? Because what about, what about good people? I mean, good people never do anything bad, right? There's never any bad or evil in good people. No, good people mess up. Actually, this whole church is full of people who have screwed up big time. And some of you are going to make some bad mistakes this week. Try not to, but we will. Where do you stop? Where does God stop intervening at this point? Maybe, maybe somebody who's starting to drink too much. That'd be a good time to jump in, right? But they're a good person. But, but maybe God jumps in and says, no. Somebody who's, who's messing around apart from their spouse. Somebody who's maybe cheating on their taxes tonight trying to get them done. God's going to intervene because he's not going to allow that to happen. But he goes a little further. Maybe it's, maybe it's little white lies. Let's not allow little white lies to happen. I know. Let's not allow anyone else to use someone else's Netflix password to watch a movie if you don't have an account. Because that's evil. That's sin. That's wrong. And so he's going to stop in. He's going to come and he's going to stop that. Or, or what if he, let, let's take it even further. What if he doesn't allow fashion faux pas? If you're wearing white after Labor Day, bzzz, Right? I don't know if that's still a thing. You know, I don't know if, what it is here in Arizona, but, but where does it stop? <laughs> too many calories. Bzzz, you've eaten too much. You've not exercised enough. And he starts coming in. Oh, let's go even further. You're using the wrong translation of the Bible. Bzzz, where does it stop? If God uses his power in ways like this to, to control and to manipulate and to guide and to make a perfect society, a perfect body, a perfect union, what happens in that? Well, think about it in your home. You have opportunities to do that if you're a parent. And so parents are all over the place. Some are so laissez-faire, anything goes, and kids go and fly off the deep end, and some, who knows, it's different in each one. Some are so strict, you can in your home, you, can, you have all power in your home in many ways as a parent. So you can continue to tighten the screws on your kids so much so that they can't move, they can't breathe, they can't do anything wrong. And eventually what you're developing in your home are these things called robots. Right? Would you rather have robots or children? Robots that do everything you want, that go with you wherever you are? We have them already. <laughs> I love my phone. It has such great affection with it and it never messes up. And Let me see here. Siri, do you love me? Apple make iPhones? <laughs> Siri, do you love me? I'm not capable of love. <laughs> you never know what she's going to say. That was a pretty profound answer right there. I'm not capable of love. I, I never know what she's going to say. That was like right on cue. That's the problem when we have robots. That's the problem when God takes freedoms away, when he begins to intervene. Because in order to have the capacity to love, there has to be the capacity for evil and for suffering. And I know in a rational way, that's, that's a logical statement, a logical argument, but it comes down to free will. It comes down to this fundamental belief that we have as followers of Christ, that there is a will that God gives us in order that we might love him. 
and that we might love each other, that we might be a community together, that we have this choice, and in order for the choice to be there for love, there has to be the choice there for evil and pain. And that doesn't seem to make sense. We don't know what to do with that, but, but that seems to be a fact. And, and a doctor, who, a physician who was working with a lot of families over the years, had his practice, he was uh, writing to a skeptic, and, and he, was, he retold this story. He said, over the years of my practice, I've had five different families who have lost younger children, children that were still in their home. He said, actually, it happened to be that all five of these families happened to be Christian families that were dealing with tremendous grief and loss. He said, one mother came up to me and really was just asking this question, why? Why? How could this happen? And he said, you know, there's no answer that we can give that will ever satisfy that. So he said, I just asked, asked her a question. And he just simply said, if you knew what was going to happen, you, you, and you go back to before you had kids and you knew what was going to happen, would you still have children? You see, she had this child that died and two others. And this question got her thinking, but she immediately answered, yes, I, I, I would do it again, even if I knew I would have to go through the pain and the loss of losing this child because of all the love and the joy and the experience of having my children, my family, I would never want to trade that in, even though I'm dealing with such pain and such suffering and such struggle. And in some ways, what her answer reveals is, I think, how God understands it, too, because he knows the pain, the struggle, and the suffering and what it's going to go through. But yet he chooses anyway because love is a higher choice. And love outweighs the other. So then we think about suffering. And we think about pain. And, and again, I don't expect you to go, okay, now I know why an all-powerful God doesn't intervene. It's a way of thinking about it. An all-loving, all-powerful God. But then you, we still see the suffering and we still see the pain. And we think, what benefit is this? What good is that in life? What, what good are mosquitoes in this world, right? I don't know. I'm going to ask God that one question. That should be one of our skeptics' questions. It doesn't seem to have any purpose or value, pain and suffering. And yet it seems to be at the heart of the gospel. It seems to be at the heart of what we read and see in Scripture. And I think there's a few things that there are benefits that God uses the pain and suffering, that he leverages for us and for our good. One of those is to draw us closer to him. I think most of us are never closer to God than we are in the, when we are in the depths of our struggle. We love coming out of the struggle. We love coming out of the depths of that, and I think that's our hope and our desire. But I know my prayer life is strongest when I'm struggling the most. And somehow God understands that it's a wake-up call. And, and, and C.S. Lewis, he said that, that when God speaks to us, right, when he, he whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It's his megaphone to get our attention. And so God takes opportunities like that to say, I am here and I want to be with you and engage with you in that. You think about Job and this, this, this book in the Old Testament that deals with such immense suffering and struggle and pain that God seemed to allow. But in the end, what Job finds isn't necessarily resolution for all his answers and for all the reasons why things happened or didn't happen. But in the end, what he finds is God. Well, the end he finds is relationship with God, and that is the most powerful, most beautiful thing. Another thing that happens to us through suffering is that we grow and strengthen through suffering. Now, you don't even have to be a follower of Christ or a believer to understand this, right? Any person understands this says, what didn't kill me made me stronger. The things that I went through, what I learned during that time, have made me who I am today. And scripture talks about God using that suffering, that pain, saying, persevere, Endure, because what it's going to build in you is going to make you whole. 
It's going to grow you into the person that I'm creating you to be. Joseph, in the Old Testament, had his tragic and yet rewarding and tragic life, kept going back and forth. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was falsely accused and rotting in jail. And God continued to work through his life. And in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he says, What others intended for harm, what you did to hurt me, to harm me, God intended for good. And God used it for good. So God takes those things to grow and to strengthen us. Another thing that that God does through suffering is that it moves us to compassion and to mission. This is what connects us as human beings. This is what unites us is when we enter each other's pain. When God sends these alerts to us, when we hear of somebody struggling and in pain, and we come alongside them, and we walk with them, and we mourn with them, and we we just spend time together, it's what brings us together in community. It's what moves us into mission. It's what taps into who we are as human beings, and God allows us to be the agents of hope and of healing. Why does Jesus say, blessed are those who mourn? for they will be comforted. And so God says, in this pain and suffering, I'm going to allow something beautiful to come from that. You're going to see a community. You're going to feel love, and you're going to be supported and loved by others. The fourth thing is that God reveals himself to us through this. God uses pain and suffering as opportunities, not only, again, to get our attention, but in, in, in Jesus' time in the New Testament, there, there were people arguing over this blind man, and, and the question came to Jesus, who sinned, you know? Did his parents sin or this man sin? Because there was a sense of this karma kind of faith, right? God, God's going to punish you, and the evil is a punishment from God. And Jesus says, look, nobody sinned. The reason this happened is to reveal God's glory. And when we get those glimpses of a miracle, we get those glimpses of something supernatural where I don't know why God does it, when he does it, how he does it, why he doesn't do it at different times, but when we get the opportunity to be a part of something, it reminds us of who God is and that there is a God that's there. And God uses all these things to work together. But you see, at the heart of this question, beyond all the theological kind of pieces and philosophical ideas of bears and hunters and tranquilizers versus guns, I mean, those are fun debates that you can have, but I know that doesn't ease the pain. I know that doesn't take the struggle away. And, and, and what this question assumes is that God is out there in the distance with his arms folded, and that he's a distant, disinterested God, right? He's over here, all-powerful, all-loving. There's pain and sorrow, and he is disinterested. He's disengaged in that struggle, and he's distant. But this is where our faith, this is where God's word shows us a whole different picture, doesn't it? Because we have Jesus. And Jesus didn't consider it enough just to sit back and cross his arms. God didn't just consider it enough to sit back in heaven and say, I'm going to send them some good theological arguments. I'm going to send them some more questions. I'm going to send them, you know, this great way to argue this through. You know what he did? He sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to come, and at the center of our faith is the symbol of a cross. We have a symbol of torture and pain and suffering as the very symbol that we hold up as the central symbol of our faith. Think about that. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 to 6, and as it describes a God who did not just stay content to be in heaven, folding his arms, but entered what we did. It says, He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, Acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion 
crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Jesus entered our pain. He entered what was here and he said, I'm coming to make a way out of this pain, out of the struggle, that you don't have to bear it alone, that there is hope, that there is future, that he can say, I understand, me too. I was abandoned, I was rejected, I felt physical pain, I was ab- and felt abandoned by my Father in heaven. <laughs> Why have you forsaken me, he yells. He understands that feeling, that question that we ask too, which is, what could possibly good come out of this? What good could possibly come out of this? Can you imagine all of Jesus' disciples at that moment, right? He's going to the cross. What good could possibly come out of this? And as we talked about last week, what sets our part of faith, our faith apart from others is the cross and the resurrection. Because this cross, which seemed to be the symbol of what good could possibly come out of this, turned out to be the most important, powerful, life-changing thing that has ever happened in the face of this earth. And it came through suffering. It came through the cross. Because on the other side of the cross is resurrection, is an empty tomb, is new life. God restores because he comes alongside us and he leads us through the cross to the resurrection. In this past year, I've walked with, uh, in, in, with Norberto over these years and, and, uh, and he's just been sharing with me what God's continuing to do. And in this past year or so, he's, he's fallen in love again with a beautiful lady named Nancy. Nancy's husband died tragically as well. And Nancy had a couple, has a couple of kids She loves the Lord. She serves in the church. Together they got married and are now a family together serving God, continuing in ministry what God has done, and they just announced that they're expecting another child. Now, does that take the pain away from before? No. The pain is still there. The hurt is still there. But what it shows is that God restores. God brings life. God brings resurrection. God brings hope. We look forward to a future. It says in Revelation 21.4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. And we hold on to that hope. And God begins to give us glimpses of that on this side of eternity. So I don't know where you are this morning. If you came in as a skeptic and you're asking these questions because you just can't get past the theological, philosophical hurdle of what we've heard this morning, I hope that at least maybe I've reframed some things, maybe given you a few things to hold on to. This kind of discussion is best had as a discussion where I'm sure you've got even more questions that have been raised by this. But maybe, maybe it gives a new perspective. If you're in the middle of the pain right now, Forget the things I said about these answers and reasons and whatnot, but know that Jesus Christ comes alongside and wants to enter your pain and walk alongside with you. If you're not dealing with either of those, but you are here, then look for those in need. Look for those who hurt. Be Jesus to them. Come around them. Give them a hug. Embrace them and just say, I don't understand. I don't get it all either, but I love you and I'm here for you. That is the mission. That is community. That is what God does in these moments. As we close this morning, we're going to close with communion during our final song. Because communion is this amazing thing. 
If we think about this, this, what we celebrate as a church, when we take the body of Christ represented by the bread, and we take the cup, which represents the blood that was spilled out for us on the cross, what are we doing? We're remembering pain and sorrow, suffering and torture that was done to Jesus on our behalf. And that because of that price that was paid, we can have new life. And that God can bring beauty out of the ashes, that he can restore the pain. And he can bring new life from that. And so today we're going to take together, we're going to pass it out. I'm going to ask you to hold on to the bread and the cup. And then we'll, I'll come back up and invite us to take it together. We, ha- we practice open communion here at McDowell Mountain Community Church. Anyone can participate if you are a believer your heart is with Christ, you can join. If you do not like to participate or would like to pass, just pass the plate, and that is fully okay. But let's pray together. Let's worship together. Let's bow our heads as we pray. And ask the ushers to come forward, please. Heavenly Father, this is a tough question. These are tough questions we're dealing with, and, and God, our heads sometimes hurt, and intellectually, we can't wrap our minds around some of these pieces that We just fall short on answers, but God, help us to remember that you are the mystery, God, behind so much of this, and that mystery is beautiful, and it draws us more and more towards you. But God, not only that you are just mystery, but God, that you have also revealed yourself in Jesus Christ, and that you have entered our pain, you have entered our struggle, you love us, you care for us, and God, that a day is coming where we will find resolution, and we will know, and we will understand, but until that time, God, we trust, we pray, we hope, and we want to experience the comfort of community. God, as we take the elements here shortly, God, help us to remember your pain and your suffering and the beauty that came from the pain on that cross. In Jesus' name, amen.